On Perspective this week, we're considering your human rights. Should we be concerned about UK politics potentially talking us out of being part of the European Convention on Human Rights? Manx QC Stuart Gale certainly thinks so, but Deputy Chief Minister Jane Poole Wilson, MHK, does not believe this will be a problem. The Minister also talks about her move from MLC to MHK and Minister, considers the ailments of government and how to fix them, as well as explaining the priorities of her Department of Home Affairs. I began by asking Stuart Gale for the Manx Skeet. Who are you and where do you come from? I was born in Ramsey. Well, no, I wasn't. I was born in Glen Alden, to be exact. Um, went to the grammar school in Ramsey. Uh, left in early 1970s to go to university. Went to university in Scotland uh, to study law. Um, and then went to America to study law. Came back to Scotland, qualified as an advocate at the bar in Scotland in 1980, and became a QC in 1993. I've been in practice in Scotland ever since 1980, so how many years that is, 44 years, uh, 42 years. Um, And um, about seven years ago, I came back over to the island and uh, spent some time as a consultant to Keynes. And that's where I sort of became particularly interested in um, the island's um, legal system. And I suppose um, then, then from, from a listener's perspective, for those who, who don't really understand this and perhaps are, are confusing the European Union with the uh, mm. European Council, um, would it be possible, I mean, could, could you give us a, a feel for what uh, specifically the, um, uh, the, 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 the convention actually provide yeah. well the the convention sets out a number of principles in articles and this they range from the very basic principle of uh, right to life um right to um to not be subjected to torture uh to have a private life to have a family life freedom of association, um, to be entitled to a fair trial, uh, to be entitled to um, have um, access to your um, uh, property. Um, So there's a whole range of um, uh, principles that are provided for. And in the event that there is a breach of those principles, um, then an individual can make a complaint, first of all, to what's called the European Commission on Human Rights. And if that's not successful, then eventually to the European Court of Human Rights. So that's, that's the, the route that one uh, can follow. Now, in 1990, Eight, with the um, with the Blair government in the UK, um, what they did was they decided that um, instead of um, the rights under the convention being, um, I won't say guidance because they weren't guidance, but difficult to enforce, that through the Human Rights Act in the UK, um, 
the rights would be part of domestic law. So if you and I have a situation where, for example, we consider that we have not been given a fair trial, uh, we can make a complaint uh, personally about that. And eventually, once one, one has exhausted the domestic courts, take the matter to the Court of uh, Human Rights in Strasbourg. That's the, in a nutshell, that's, that's the, the process that one follows. So give you an example, uh, it's a very recent one. Um, the Supreme Court in London last week was hearing a case um, which was a reference from, um, I think, from the Attorney General of Northern Ireland about the legality of a, um, an act, or I think it must be the regulation, um, which regulated um, um, the, well, the, the, I suppose, the right of people to protest outside abortion clinics. And obviously it was a particularly uh, thorny issue in Northern Ireland. And um, much of the discussion in that case, I, I watched a little bit of it, you can watch the Supreme Court on television if you've really got nothing else to do. And um, I, I watched a little of it last week and much of it concerned concern the, 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 the various rights to assembly, the rights to protest. Um, so it, it covers many, many issues. Um, and that's one of the, one of the, the issues that, uh, that is currently um, being considered by, by the courts in, in, in the UK and presumably it can then, if depending on the decision of the Supreme Court, it can then be taken further um, to so, the the European Court of Human Rights. So again, just just to avoid any uh, doubt or confusion yeah. in the minds of the listener, um, who will be saying, "Ah, oh, yes, but we left the European Union." <laughs> uh, I mean, of course, for the Isle of Man's perspective, yeah. we, we were never in. Um, yeah. but, but they'll be saying, "Why are these uh, Eurocrats interfering with with uh, our affairs?" Uh, effectively, we're talking two different systems. Really. Yeah, they're two entirely different. Um, so, an interesting point about that is that. I've forgotten how many countries are now in the EU, even after the UK left. It's in the 20s, the high 20s, I think. And um, I think there's 40 countries who are party to the European Convention on Human Rights. Um, and until earlier this year, Russia was a party to the European Convention on Human Rights. Now, um, since Russia has invaded Ukraine, Russia has been given what we call in Scotland the go Mac, which has <laughs> been kicked out uh, of the uh, uh, of the European. Um, I'm not sure whether Belarus is also. Uh, if, if it is, it's gone as well. But it's a much wider. So there, there, there are countries that are members of the European Convention on Human Rights. I think Turkey, for example, mm. is a member of the European Convention on Human Rights. So of course, Turkey is not. 
a member of the EU. So they're two entirely different things. Well, the convention is, is, I mean, I look at it from the point of view, uh, both as a lawyer and just as an interested member of the public. I like the idea of having some general principles of um, what the state and public authorities can do vis-a-vis my clients and vis-a-vis myself. There are so many issues that, that, that human rights covers. Ten minutes ago, slightly more than that, because we've been talking for ten minutes, but uh, probably about an hour ago, I was watching the news, and there's a, one of these awful cases about a, a boy called Battersby, um, who is, is unfortunately, from however it occurred, he is, he's brain dead. And the doctors who are treating him have applied, or the hospital where he's being treated have applied to the court for uh, the life um, support system that he that he is on to be withdrawn, and to, to for him to be allowed to die because he has no no prospect of recovery, and he is is according to all the medical evidence that there is he is brain dead, and the he, he uh, his parents opposed that for the high court in London and then the judge in the high court said no I'm sorry your son is is brain dead and afraid I'm going to allow uh, life support to be withdrawn they then appealed that to the court of appeal uh, and the court of appeal this afternoon said the same thing and what they are now there's been a stay of that uh, judgment so that life support isn't immediately withdrawn to allow the parents to possibly appeal the matter to the European Court of Human Rights. What this appears to give is an additional right of appeal uh, to what appears to be very sensible principles by which we would all uh, want to to, to live our lives and would want protection to allow us to live our lives in such a way. They might also, though, uh, if they're to, to, to... parrot the the phrases that have been used uh, in in relation to the European Union uh, say well surely uh, we want to bring back control and uh, have control of our own laws and our own legislation so so why would we need to have this European body to to oversee something which we could administer ourselves well um that well I think then one one needs to go back to um where we are at the moment in terms of proposals. Now, the the Conservative Party in its election manifesto of 2019 uh, proposed that um, the Human Rights Act um, be repealed, um, principally because um, the the government uh, looked at it as uh, I think you've just said. Uh, in the same way as interference from uh, Europe on matters that should be within the exclusive domain of of the UK, and um, what it what the government then proposed, was, well, what it, what it did was in 2020 it established a commission under the chairmanship of Sir Peter Gross, and uh, he investigated to evidence from many, many people. And he wrote a, a lengthy report in, uh, in late 2000 and 
late, late last year, 2021. And he issued the report in, in December last year, and he made certain recommendations about what should happen to the Human Rights Act in the UK. And the government um, took that on board. And about two months ago, Dominic Raab, who is the Deputy Prime Minister and also the Lord Chancellor, issued a consultative document um, in which uh, he said strangely two things. One, which was that the government would remain committed, that was his word, to the European Convention on Human Rights, but that the government would also repeal the Human Rights Act in uh, the UK and establish a uh, Bill of Rights, which would not be European-centred. Um, now, I'm sure the fault is me, but I just don't see how those two propositions are compatible. And I'm slightly encouraged in that by two things I've read and heard recently. One was a, it was a question um, put by Lord Mackay of Clash Fern in the House of Lords about, about 10 days ago. Lord Mackay of Clash Fern was formerly uh, Margaret Thatcher's Lord Chancellor in the days when the Lord Chancellor was also a judge. And indeed, Lord Mackay of Clash Fern, this was his last question in the House of Lords, because he's now 95 and he's retiring. And indeed, it makes me feel old because I was once James Mackay's junior in a case in 1980. He asked a question uh, of the minister. I don't even know who the minister was in the House of Lords. He, he effectively put the question in a way that the minister had to say, yes, you know, we will remain part of the European Convention on Human Rights. So that, that was one thing. Um, the other thing, about two days ago in The Guardian, there was an interview with uh, Lady Hale, who was the former president of the Supreme Court in London. And you may remember, she, she was the judge who um, announced the uh, decision when, uh, well, three years ago, when the Supreme Court unanimously decided that Boris Johnson, um, when he sought to prorogue Parliament, acted illegally. So again, a very, very distinguished judge. And um, she was asked, is it a good idea to get rid of uh, the Human Rights Act and um, access to the European Court of Human Rights? And she said, no. She said, it's a very sensible act. I can't think why anybody would want to do it. I'm paraphrasing what she said. I suppose what uh, the British government would say, and it's far far for me to, to speak on their behalf, uh, yeah. is that they're the elected government, and surely to goodness they, they shouldn't be being overruled by uh, judges and lawyers in um, far-flung parts of Europe. In a way, um, and maybe I, I'm answering the question for you. Uh, that's the whole. That is the whole point of this, uh, because they are okay. in far-flung parts of Europe. They they are in a position to uh, to be able to look at this in a more, a more balanced way than perhaps uh, those closer to home. Well, there's been a great deal of what's called Strasbourg jurisprudence. I mean, there are books and books on on uh, on this, and it, the. Court of uh, Human Rights in Strasbourg has developed the law as it's gone along. And it's a specialist court um, which has done that. So, I mean, my, my concern really is that if the UK does withdraw 
from the European Convention on Human Rights, then yes, it, it, it allows the decision to be taken within the UK and up to the Supreme Court. But that still, I think, takes away the overriding interest that I think people have, which is that one should be able to go to a specialist court, which is expert in the particular field of law, and which is which deals with this all the time. The, the idea of reducing the, the, the scope of human rights in the UK is, I, th I think, as ridiculous a decision as withdrawing from the European uh, Union was, which, you know, I think was, you know, within my, within my lifetime, one of the most stupid decisions our British government has ever taken. If one, if they do withdraw from the European Convention on Human Rights, I think the one thing that can be done is that uh, we can, a future government of a different political hue can uh, rejoin. Um, it's much easier to rejoin the European Convention on Human Rights than it is to join the EU. As far as the Isle of Man is concerned, yeah. could the UK leave the convention but the Isle of Man remain as party to it? I think that would be very difficult. And I think this is the issue for the island. Because the island has its own Human Rights Act, which is a, effectively a duplicate of the um, uh, UK Human Rights Act. And if there were to be um, a situation where uh, somebody on the island uh, wished to um, take a point of human rights law, eventually they would, if they took it to the European Court of Human Rights, they would have to take it against the UK, would not be against the, um, against the island, it would be against the UK, mm. as it was with the Birchin case back in 79. It would be very difficult, I think, um, for the island to remain. I think I, I probably once said that I used to ask questions on uh, for students of constitutional law, and I used to like to think that I knew the answer to them. This is one that I really don't know the answer to, but I think if the UK with, withdraws from the European Convention, and I think the UK is going to withdraw from the European Convention, then the Isle of Man is going to have to reform its own human rights, it's an act of Tinwald, its own human rights act, so as to some, somehow reflect the what, what's happened in the UK. So it's a unfortunate position to be to be put in and, and, and i did notice that that in the um, consultation paper the government said that it it's considering this with all the devolved administrations so england uh, to, uh, so wales scotland and northern ireland there's not a mention of the isle of man and the isle of man is the only only one of those um, devolved administrations that has its own human rights act so it's a very interesting position um, for constitutional lawyers far brighter than me. You know, something is, you know, something is, as they say, afoot in, in the UK, and uh, it really needs to be uh, examined. There, if I can just make one other point, there are very few cases on the Isle of Man where human rights law has been considered. There are a couple of recent cases. There was the case of the, the gentleman who lives up at the top of the Crushing's Lane and has effectively made his own little house there. There was an issue as to whether or not there was on land occupied by um, the department. That case, there was no argument in that case um, based on um, Article 8, which is right to uh, right to family life. And I think it could have been made in that case. Um, similarly, there was another case, and again, I've forgotten the name of it, where a gentleman complained about um, 
the restrictions on coming back to the island during COVID. He was successful, um, but just based on on basic um, judicial review principles. But he mentioned, unfortunately, again, it was a case that he argued himself without a lawyer. And he um, he argued that, in, yeah, I think, in, in just in general terms, his human rights had been breached. And it seemed to be that the idea was what's called an Article One Protocol One argument, which is wasn't able to make use of his um, his property. Uh, that was never going to succeed. But what might have succeeded was an Article Eight. So that that could have been a, a possible. So human rights is is you know is there for um, to be used on the Isle of Man. And I think if, if it was just simply withdrawn, it would be a very great shame. I think the, the scope of human rights as contained in the European Convention on Human Rights is much wider than what is being proposed by the Bill of Rights that, I, that I've seen. I still find it offensive that the government is effectively using a, a what's quite clearly a prejudice against um, judgments being taken elsewhere. And I see no reason why there shouldn't be. Uh, these judgments continue to be made in the um, European court. I asked the minister what the impact of the UK's potential withdrawal from the convention would have on our human rights. So I think, I think first of all, it's, it's probably worth, Phil, being clear that... As we understand it at the moment on the island, it's not actually the UK government's policy to exit the European Convention on Human Rights. As we understand it, what is proposed through their Bill of Rights is to actually reenact in the UK how the European Convention rights are put into their domestic law. So, like us, they currently have a Human Rights Act. It, it predates ours. I think theirs is 1998. Um, and what they're proposing to do, we understand, is not exit the European Convention itself, but repeal their own Human Rights Act and replace it with their proposed Bill of Rights bill. So the way in which they put those convention rights into their domestic law is proposed to change. And this matters to us because UK's membership of the uh, European um, Convention on Human Rights kind of is the way in for the Isle of Man. I mean, potentially we could have membership in our own right, but it would be unusual uh, were that the case. Well, you're right that because of our status as a Crown dependency, the way the Isle of Man signs up to a convention like the European Convention on Human Rights is through the UK, for want of a better expression. Um uh, there is, as I understand it, I don't have details of, of the examples of this, but as I understand it, there is precedent for when the UK has exited or denounced, uh, is the official language, um, a convention that the Isle of Man has been able to stay in. Um, but as I say, that is not in our understanding, and we are, you will understand, monitoring the situation closely, and we will monitor the progress of the Bill of Rights bill through through the UK Parliament as well. But as we understand it, the proposal is not to exit the convention. It is to ch for the UK to change how those rights are put in place in domestic law. What it means for the Isle of Man is we have our own Human Rights Act 2001. Now, the choice of the Parliament in England and Wales to change their domestic legal provision 
does not affect us. So we are free to determine not to change, to keep our own Human Rights Act as it is. Um, and so that, I think, is where the distinction comes in. So effectively, our 2001 Act is is fine unless there is a significant change um, in, in terms of the UK's position with regards to the Convention. I think, yes, the, the, the thing that would be of most significance, I suppose, for us is if the government in the UK changed policy and sought to withdraw from the European Convention itself, that would pose a question for us. And for that reason, obviously, we will closely monitor what happens um, in the UK. I think the other thing, and this is, of course, all subject to what the UK's Bill of Rights bill ends up looking like, should it should it go through. Um, one of the things that's proposed currently, I understand, is to make the Supreme Court in England and Wales the, the ultimate court of determination on human rights matters. Now, as things stand, it's the European Court in Strasbourg, which is the ultimate court of appeal on these matters. So um, for as long, again, as I understand it, for as long as we are signed up to the convention, I would understand that the Isle of Man's ultimate final court of appeal would be still the European Court in Strasbourg. But those are the points of detail that I think it's important for us to monitor as the UK progresses its own legislation and for us to understand fully any implications and make sure that we consider how we address those as they arise. And, and of course, this matters um, to, to all citizens in, in the Isle of Man. Um, well, perhaps you could, you could tell me why, why Isle of Man government thinks uh, membership of the convention is, is important. Well, I think, you know, it is recognised that these human rights are designed to underpin our whole legislative philosophy. If anybody picks up a, a piece of legislation or a, a bill as it joins the, the branches of Tinwald, they will see that invariably there's a statement in the bill that the mover of the bill is satisfied that it, it complies with, with human rights. And they are underpinning principles. Some of them are absolute rights. Some of them are, are balanced rights where it's recognised there's a... There's a balance to be struck between, and, and the right to privacy is a good one, uh, the right to privacy in a family life. There's always a balance to be struck between the individual's right and sometimes the state's right, uh, depending on on particular circumstances. But it, but the point being that these are fundamental rights that we ought to take account of in, in how we legislate and, and then how we enforce legislation in practice. And if, for example, the Bill of Rights that the UK government is proposing to introduce if when when that uh, becomes more evident in, in, in terms of its scope and structure um, it, it looks attractive um, is there any chance that the Isle of Man might mirror uh, something like that I think well it, obviously everybody has a has a different view on on what the the particular provisions are trying to achieve. And I suppose that would be the question always. I mean, it, you know, what is it that is sought to be achieved? Do does the do, does the Parliament in the UK have some different considerations to the to the considerations we would have in the Isle of Man? Does it mean that they have a different basis for trying to do things differently? I mean, those are questions that I would say the Parliament in Westminster have to grapple with and work out. Um, I think from our perspective, we are in that fortunate position of being able to legislate for ourselves. And I suppose the question we must ask ourselves is, are we satisfied that our Human Rights Act is fit for purpose and does what we need it to do? 
if things change, of course, you know, it would be a, a foolish government or parliament that was never open to looking at things and looking at why you would adapt something. But you would need a reason, would be my view. And we should look at that from uh, our Isle of Man perspective. In effect, then, the, uh, the, the Isle of Man government's position appears to be, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I think that's a, a fair summary, actually, Phil. Um, I think, you know, it, we have a lot of legislation planned for this administration. I think we have to be mindful of what we should be prioritising in terms of our legislative programme ourselves. Um, and yes, if there isn't a reason to change something like our Human Rights Act, then we have got plenty of things that we can be working on in terms of our legislative programme. Which seems like an entirely appropriate um, um point in the interview to move on to your role in the Department of Home Affairs. Uh, obviously, you you spent um, some time, was it uh, two, three years as, as MLC? It was four. Four years, okay. Just over four. Great. And, and, and now, not quite a year as an MHK, um, I suppose to start with, it, is there any difference between being an MHK and an MLC? Yes, there is. Um, I mean, I... I as anyone, as you will know, but anyone who's ever been involved in Tinwald or who follows Tinwald closely will know there is a ton of work. Um, if you're going to get stuck in, there's there's plenty to do. Um, so, you know, my experience as a member of Legislative Council was a, a huge variety of roles and work. Um, personally, very, very focused on the legislative side there. What I would say is different with my experience of being an MHK so far is one becoming a minister and, and the department responsibilities and workload. Allied to that is obviously the Council of Ministers' responsibilities and, and workload. And I think the other thing that's significant and different for me is the constituency uh, workload. I mean, I, I yes, I had individuals contacting me before when I was a member of Legislative Council to do with specific matters they knew I was interested in or involved in. But I think that day-to-day -day general uh, contact from constituents with a whole range of matters and queries that's uh that's an increase in volume and has that surprised you uh i i, I don't think i've had time to be surprised if that's <laughs> true if that's a fair comment i think the the truth is you know post the election everything happens with a with a degree of impetus and speed and you just get on with it um it's interesting you ask me about whether i'm surprised i think i've 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 adjusted and recognised what's different, but you just get on with it as well. So not only uh, becoming an MHK, but also becoming a minister, um, and both these um, these new roles that you've taken on have extra work associated with them. So um, you are you a lot busier, would you say, than, than you were as an MLC? I don't. I'm not sure. I would say a lot busier. I'm definitely busier in in different directions, and for sure, you have to juggle uh, lots of different things. I think the other change for me is probably more outside commitments, if I can put it that way. So more um, evening and weekend events, whether they're constituency or or attached to responsibilities. But the reading workload. I mean, I was always a keen person to try and read what we were doing, whether it was legislation or policy work in any event. Um, now it happens in a different way in that I see it through Council of Ministers. So the, the processing of it happens in a slightly different way, I would say. Um, but I'm, yes, it's it's demanding for sure. But I, it's 
endlessly interesting and and I would say invigorating I mean challenging definitely but endlessly invigorating and interesting and worthwhile and and that of course is certainly for me anyway was one of the things I found most difficult to come to terms with in in essence the discussions that happened in Tinmold happened a month before in the council of ministers when you were considering business to, to go on the agenda and let's let's face it 90% of the the business on Tinmold's agenda is Council of Ministers business. So it, it, it often felt quite difficult to get motivated to, to make the public speeches in, in, in Tinwald uh, because you'd already had the, the, the discussion and the debate in, in, in Council of Ministers. And and I think, you know, I, I the, the public debate is so, so important. Um, I think the, the other interesting thing, though, is um, that balance between are you adding something to that debate or are you just reiterating points already made by by fellow members and 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 sometimes there's value I think in reiterating points but I think there's also I think there's an importance in capturing diversity of view uh in in the public domain so yes I mean you know you wouldn't expect for very good reason that every member of council of ministers hops up on every item because particularly where there may be a a a clear view from the contributions that come forward that people are content that they they think it is the right direction they're content with the content of regulations or whatever it may be so i think you know when it comes to actually the tinwald sittings themselves if it's a department matter or law that's being moved then obviously that's my responsibility to be able to move that uh, well and critically be able to engage with people in the debate and answer their questions and in relation to home affairs it's uh... A reasonably open secret that uh, the chief executive there, Dan Davis, uh, was was sent in to close the department down, um, and yet uh, it 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 appears that the Department of Home Affairs uh, lives to fight again. Uh, there's no intention of getting rid of that department now. I um, looked at the position um, when I first got became minister, um, and I think you know the thinking was uh, you know what. Is there any way that the work that Home Affairs done could could be done differently? And I think that the fact is that most of what I think the public see of Home Affairs anyway are its operational divisions. So they see the constabulary, they see the fire and rescue um, service. What they probably see less of actually is the service around prison and probation the Emergency Services Joint Control Room and the Civil Defence and Emergency Planning Services. But actually the bulk of the staff... And a lot of what Home Affairs is responsible for are those frontline operational areas. So actually in restructuring the department, you have to ask yourself what would be the benefit compared to the amount of time and uh, work that would be involved in that restructure. And you will know, Phil, the, the glorious uh, item that we have, the transfer of functions order, when we look to move different functions around parts of government. And a lot of work goes into those things because you cannot drop the ball. You know, if you're moving functions, you've got to make sure they go somewhere and there's a reason for them going there. And I think other factors which are really critical with Home Affairs is there's a reason why the constabulary and the chief constable are operationally independent of politicians. One of the thoughts was could some of Home Affairs functions in the centre move to somewhere like Cabinet Office? But actually then what you do is make a link closer in between the constabulary and the chief constable and the centre of government. So I think I came to the view that whilst there are, of course, things you can do, the work and time involved to implement some of that 
was not necessarily going to generate the benefit that I think would justify that. And actually, we have a huge amount of legislation and policy work uh, to get on with. And my honest view was I, I would much prefer officers to focus on delivery of what we've already got and what we need to try and do, rather than moving things around for what I'm not convinced would have been a, a whole amount of efficiency and benefit. And and yet the Chief Minister, um, when, when he spoke to Agenda um, a, a few weeks ago, uh, was very clear that uh, we don't need more civil servants to deliver the, the, the bold economic strategy um, that this is this is all going to happen through the the private sector effectively taking the the, the, the load but but you, you you need to enable the private sector to do that and you need officers in place to carry out the policies that are going to be required the legislative changes that are going to be required um, to, to actually deliver this do you think um, perhaps, some of the sound bites that that, that that occur in relation to the size of government are um, misguided. I, well, I think I think two things. I think first of all, um, it is important that government is efficient, and a lot of that I think is to do with clear focus on what we should be doing and prioritising. Because I think I think where we can go wrong is when we suddenly say to the officers we have got, well, we want to do ten things all at the same time, and and that's pretty impossible. So then we dilute what they're doing and we're, we're in danger of not delivering anything or not delivering it as well as we should. So I think that's a responsibility is to have clear prioritisation um, and effective use of resource. I think the other thing is that when we talk about the public service in the Isle of Man, the bulk of our staff are in these frontline roles. They are the constabulary. You look, you look at the staffing profile of Home Affairs, for example. Uh, you know, we have in the region of 12 people sitting in the centre um, who are responsible for statutory functions that we hold as a department as well as policy and delivering major legislation. And I will remind people what that is. It's domestic abuse, sexual offences, justice reform. And in the next government, the next uh, uh, legislative programme, we're looking at things like sentencing, like modernisation of our firearms laws, uh, fire safety and so on. These are important pieces of legislation. So we've got these people sitting in the centre doing all of that, as well as supporting all the parliamentary um, the parliamentary work and questions and so on. But far and away, the bulk of our staff are the constabulary, um, you know, the people who are delivering the frontline service, the fire and rescue service, the emergency services joint control room on call 24-7. We have one paid emergency planning officer, Jane Kelly, who does sterling work, and we have about 47 civil defence volunteers. Um, and we have a prison and probation service, you know, and again, they are responsible for operating our prison 24-7 and a probation service to actually support not only rehabilitation from people who've served sentences, but also to try and uh, support people um, in terms of community sentences and so on. Um, and so that's far and away the bulk of our staffing. Um, and, and as you go around the uh, the, the the different aspects of the public service you know you look at manx care you look at education and so on you do see um, a lot of frontline staff so i think it's important to be clear that there are a lot of people doing delivery of the services people expect and want but also yes there are people uh, sitting in departments who are there looking at policy legislation and where there are set statutory functions as well that have to be complied with they're doing that work too 
I'm going to use an, an elaborate analogy here, so forgive me and, and bear with, as they say. Um, part of the problem I, I certainly detected, and I think many people detect, is it's not so much the, the, the staff um, and their ability, it's the, the process that they have to follow. And to a certain extent, the Chief Minister touched on this uh, uh, when he was describing the, the lazy processes of government. Um, it does often feel as though you're, you're, if you're using the analogy of, of a hammer and a nail, trying to hammer the nail into the piece of wood, that the, the nail is wrapped up in wool and cloth and bubble wrap, as is the hammer. And it's an incredibly difficult job to actually hammer the nail in because of that. Uh, government wraps itself up in so much uh, red tape, so many processes. Is it time that the, the we, we began or government began to streamline these things? Yes. I mean, you know, it was my observation um, early on because my background has always been working in the private sector um, by and large. And it was my observation that, yes, there were so many layers to move through to get something done that it was challenging um and and it can feel very frustrating if you want to get on with things and you want to actually implement change and i think um what is important though is is proper governance so i think the real art of it is to have appropriate and proportionate and effective governance um I don't think that necessarily means layer upon layer upon layer because there's a slight danger then that people generate papers to tick the box of each layer. I think it is about the uh, the challenge and engagement of officers and politicians as they go along to make sure that there is proper governance because, you know, no one would thank anybody if questions weren't asked and, and business cases or policy ideas weren't probed as they were in development or coming forward, that is really important to try and make sure that what you do deliver is fit for purpose. Um, but it's not to say you need layer upon layer to achieve that if you can be effective in your, your governance and scrutiny arrangements. To a certain extent, we've believed our own propaganda, haven't we, as government? Uh, well, I say we, you. Uh, the the Man government believes its own propaganda, which is we are small we can get decisions made quickly. We can move quickly on things. This is the the, the message that has been sold to the private sector. But uh, I think many people, uh, probably most people in the private sector, would say it's far from the truth. Um, how how do you actually change the system? Um, how do you move it from where it is, which is you know still quite clunky and and not functioning um, in in the efficient way that we've been talking? Uh, to 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 that 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 position, it's it's quite a big ask, isn't it? And yeah, and I think I think you you raised something that struck me from the the KPMG research work was a sort of interesting two sides of the same coin because in all the survey and and research work they did, one of our strengths that came out was we've got a track record of uh, developing new sectors quite effectively, actually. And then on the other side of it, one of our challenges is well, is there too much red tape and do things take too long and and they are two sides of the same coin. So I suppose, I mean, the things that I see working well, and I'm really keen to do this from a home affairs perspective, but I think it also works in terms of future development of our economy and and, and our mission to um, make sure we're sustainable and so on and, and tackle things like energy decarbonisation, is um, getting the right people in the room uh, quite quickly um, and getting some clarity. Because 
I think where things are complex or touch more than one department or indeed should have buy-in from uh, relevant private sector expertise and so on, I think it's important to get those people involved, get the right people involved very early on. So I can think of examples. We've got banking resolution legislation on the books now. I know that all the background work was done with people who were experts uh, and who knew how those systems of legislation operated elsewhere. So we were very effective. We got the right expertise in quite early on. Um, and then it means that you can bring forward legislation in a sensible way that's that's fit for purpose and people have confidence in. Um, I think about, uh, you know, if I think about from, from a home affairs perspective, there are lots of things where if we're talking about early intervention and prevention, we as a department have to work very closely with health and social care because a lot of what works in practice is around our social care provision and interventions that are provided there. So it won't work unless we work collaboratively. And, you know, what we think is there's probably a lot of good work going on, but perhaps it isn't as joined up as it might be, or perhaps it isn't sort of overseen as much as it might be to see what works and what doesn't, and then that uh, agility to actually adapt and change and develop. So I think we, we do do some things really, really well, um, and it's about taking what's good and effective at the moment and, and spreading it across uh, the piece, I think. And particularly if we're going to deliver our ambitions around the economy and, and the vision for the island. Um, yes, you know, effectiveness, getting the right people in the room um, and understanding what the policy is, what the objectives are and the roadmap to delivering it. Absolutely critical. I sort of... Um how would you put it, brought you here under false pretenses because we're going to talk a lot more about home affairs. We're, we're about to, well, we've got two or three minutes left. Um, so here's, here's your chance. What, what, are the, what are the big issues that you hope to tackle in the, I suppose, ne- by this time next year, what would you hope to have achieved? And uh, by the, the end of your term, assuming you, that you stay in home affairs for the next uh, four years. So things that, are, I mean, I would encourage your listeners to look at our delivery plan because that will tell you a whole range of things that we're working on. But some big things that um, when I was chair of the Constitutional Legal Affairs and Justice Committee were brought to Tinwalls that are now in train are our review into legal services. So I hope that the report on that by Lord Garnier will be produced uh, to by the end of 2022 and we'll be able to bring something forward to Tinwald then uh, in 2023. Also the review by Stephen Wooler into the Attorney General's role, that's underway as well. Uh, I made a statement in Tinworlds uh, last week about launching um, a review into drugs and the harms they cause, illicit substances. So that's due to deliver later in 2023, but again, with a view to informing uh, policy and so on. Then in terms of our operational work, we've got um, an inspection report we're due to receive, I hope imminently, uh, into the constabulary, which uh, looks at areas of specifically we asked for them to look at areas of governance at public protection in in terms of particularly the vulnerable and also at capacity um, and effectiveness in the area of serious and organized crime so depending on what comes out of that review i will be looking to see what we need to do to address those things we also want to put in place reviews we will have to do um a review with the national fire chiefs council actually due to technical issues with with trying to get her majesty's inspector over but to look at the fire and rescue service and a community risk management plan to plan for the future of the fire and rescue service and and its um, effectiveness and we'll also uh, put in place a review of uh, the prison and probation service 
which is also doing excellent work, a lot of work around rehabilitation. We've got a workshop that's now been built on the, the, the prison designed to help reskill and increase people's opportunity to get work when they, they leave the prison. A lot of work um, also in our community services and a lot of work in the constabulary around reducing harm and particularly looking after some of our vulnerable people and and our young people in terms of diverting them. Um, so there is a huge amount going on. And I, I should also say, I really want to, uh, by this time next year, have seen our domestic abuse legislation not only implemented, but up and running, um, our sexual offences legislation and our justice reform, and to have some good policy work underway around uh, the, the other areas of legislation that we've got listed in our programme. Lots. <laughs> well, Deputy Chief Minister and Minister for Home Affairs, um, You've obviously got a lot on your plate, so uh, thank you very much for sparing some time to come up and talk to us, and hopefully we'll have you back on soon to to talk a, a lot more about the, the work that your department's doing. Thank you very much, Phil. Should we be concerned about a potential loss of our human rights? Would the UK's proposed Bill of Human Rights be sufficient? Does this current government have the ability to change the culture and processes of government where so many in the past have tried and failed? The Minister certainly appears to understand the problems and has identified the way forward. She is part of a council of ministers that appears to have gelled around a collective vision of what needs to change and why. But can they deliver? Is Stuart Gale's concern justified or is he worrying us all unnecessarily? Please get in touch with philgorn at manxradio.com and let me know your thoughts and views on the programme. And don't forget, the podcast is available from Manx Radio's website. But for now, I'm Phil Gorn, Goromayus and Gaisjak Rum. Thanks for listening. <laughs>